0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to The Real Science Exchange, the podcast where leading scientists and industry professionals meet over a few drinks to discuss the latest ideas and trends in animal nutrition. We've seen many advancements in genetics uh, from both the animals we feed and the crops we grow. Tonight, we're going to take a deep dive into swine genetics and the role that nutrition plays in helping maximize those benefits. Hi, I'm Scott Sorrell, one of your hosts here at The Real Science Exchange. As global population surges and we look to do more with less while improving uh, industry sustainability, genetic selection is playing a pivotal role. Tonight, we start with a look at the genetic advancements taking place in the swine industry and the impact those advancements have on all other parameters. To help us dig into those topics, we welcome uh, Dr. Tom Rathje from DNA Genetics. Tom, welcome to the exchange. Thank you. As most of our audience knows, um, our discussions take place here in a virtual pub. So with that theme in mind, what are you drinking tonight, Tom?
1: You know, I've got a Diet Pepsi tonight, Scott, but I wish I had a Mictors with me right now. So I may have to follow up on that.
0: Well, I know that uh, Steph ordered the Mictors. Unfortunately, it hasn't arrived yet, but uh, we will promise you know, the, the mail is not what it used to be. I'm not sure what's going on no, with that. Right. Right. <laughs> so um, I notice also that you've brought a guest with you. Would you mind introducing him?
1: Yeah, I'd love to. Um, uh, Dr. Jason Schneider is with us today. He's uh, a nutritionist on our team at DNA Genetics. Uh maybe Jason let you say a few more words about, about yourself. You'll do a better job than I can. So.
2: Yeah. Thanks Tom. Uh, yeah, obviously my name's Jason. Um, I'm a nutritionist by training on the DNA technical service team. I've been with DNA for uh, about four years here now. Um, and then some of my background, uh, really is growing up was on a typical diversified crop livestock farm in Eastern Iowa. Um, and really just liked the nutritional area uh, of raising pigs and and cows and and how all that interacted with crops Um, and then from there uh, i went to finish my undergraduate iowa state university uh, my master's at oklahoma state university and then finished up my phd at uh, uh, kansas state university so I uh, spent some time within the, within the feed company, Nutrition World, uh, as well as in, with a, a production company in Northeast Iowa, and then uh, moved on to DNA here, where I work with uh, a lot of our, our customers in the field in the U.S. and Canada.
0: Super. Well, it's a pleasure meeting you, Jason, and uh, welcome to the exchange. And, Thank you. Uh, And in keeping with our theme, so what are you drinking tonight? <clears throat>
2: I have a Paulander beer, oh, so nice. usually a, a kind of a bush guy 90% of the time, but I figure <laughs> this could be something special, so.
0: Splurging, good, <laughs> appreciate it. <laughs> uh, tonight my co-host is uh, Dr. Zach Lohman, Zach's uh, Balchem's Chem's monogastric technical service lead, and he's joined us here before um, here at the exchange a few times, so welcome back uh, Zach, and tell us what you're drinking and any story that goes with along with that.
3: I'm actually drinking fruit smash they're uh, kind of a light seltzer it was 70 here in North Carolina last week and uh, so we got something to drink on the front porch but it was 25 this morning so not quite the right weather for it yeah
0: yeah I understand. Well, I'm going with an old standby. I've got a Woodford's Reserve tonight. I've kind of gotten into a bit of a, a rut. been traveling a lot, haven't had a chance to get to the state store, but we'll remedy that here coming up this weekend. So maybe I'll have something different next week.
4: Tonight's pubcast stories are brought to you by the Keesher line of chelated minerals. Keesher and Keesher Plus deliver proven and consistent bioavailability to maximize performance and a no-frills pricing approach for greater profitability. Visit Balchem.com to learn more.
0: Let's get started. Um, Tom, can you give us um, uh, a brief rundown of the 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 traits that have advanced the most within the swine industry, and why are those characteristics important?
1: Yeah. So, um, in the 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 um, the webinar that we did last week, I focused in on kind of two separate areas in in pig genetics. One was the reproductive side, and then, of course, the advancements we've made in the terminal pig and I think if we kind of think of those two buckets, the I guess some things that really, really um, I, I guess uh, come to the forefront for me uh, if if we look at our sow lines, uh, we've made a tremendous amount of progress in the industry for pigs weaned, and historically that was done uh, largely by selection for total born, uh, improving litter size, but. But certainly, what the industry has recognized is that we can't blindly just chase litter size. We end up with some some consequences to that, uh, things like uh, smaller birth weight pigs, uh, lower survivability. So your return on, you know, improving litter size from selecting that way, I think, uh, diminishes over time. Certainly, as in, in our program. So. Uh, we took a hard look at that and, and really our focus now more on weaning the pigs we already are producing by putting more emphasis on pig quality, uh, reducing pre-weaning mortality and, uh, focusing on sows that have the ability to, to wean and raise a, a very heavy, heavy pig at weaning. So, uh, we've shifted our focus and, and really, you know, our, have made some tremendous strides in those areas, um, uh, particularly on, um, Birth weight. In the last three or four years, we've uh, been able to have a significant impact there. Our our average birth weights are up nearly two tenths of a pound, uh, which is very significant when you're considering, um, you know, a 2.9 or 2.8 pound pig. That's a big that's a big improvement. So we're nearly nearly at three pounds now and and a little bit over. So that has a huge impact on survivability. Um, but it's changing the sow, obviously. So now we have sows today, and and we've got some commercial data that would show this that uh, even over the last six years, um, they're weaning one and a half more pigs, and and actually producing another 36 pounds of weaning weight in a given year. So, you know, the question becomes how do how do we extract that genetic potential from both a management and nutrition standpoint? Um, which you know is a is a constant um, uh, a constant challenge I think for for the industry. Um, if we think about the the terminal side, then uh, obviously uh, most terminal sire lines have been focused on efficient lean growth, and, and ours is really no different. So uh, tremendous progress over the years in in feed efficiency. We're we're moving at about uh, four units a year in feed efficiency growth. Is of course improving. Uh, so um, all, all of those things combined have certainly changed the nutritional needs of the pig. And uh, uh, I would say also, I would add in that the sow has a, a, a strong contribution to that as well. So half of the index in our sow lines is based on terminal traits of, of lean efficiency. Uh, so we're seeing all these changes. And I think uh, all of that combined is... is um, Certainly uh, uh, brings in the expertise or the need for expertise from nutrition and management, and, and you know how do we extract that full potential?
0: So you mentioned change, and, and during your webinar, you talked a lot about the fact that that change has accelerated here in recent years. Can you kind of talk through what some of those factors are?
1: Yeah. So the probably the biggest one is um, the adoption of genomic selection. Uh, That is pretty much in widespread use today so over the last decade uh, that's become uh, pretty mainstream for the industry and what genomic selection does is it improves the accuracy with which we identify superior animals so uh, genetic advancement in, in livestock is really about deciding who gets to reproduce and so when you make those decisions on which animals are retained you want that decision to be right And we try and make the right decision based on collecting performance data on the pigs and and then predicting their breeding value. Before genomics, we would, um, of course, use information from relatives of animals. So your brothers tell you something about a pig and uh, your sisters, your mother, your father, your, your cousins, all of that information can be brought to bear on improving the accuracy of knowing what your performance level is from a genetic standpoint. What genomics does for us is that instead of assuming kind of an average relationship, let's say with your siblings of 50%, genomics allows us to very accurately estimate the true relationship on the DNA level. And that increased accuracy um, will make our decisions that much better when we're deciding the replacements. So our speed of progress has increased anywhere from 25 to over 40%. Uh, compared to what it was a decade ago. And I think the implication of that for the industry is that we need to really be ready to adapt and change to that that animal faster than we ever have been before. And it's not unique to pigs. I think it's true in in poultry. It's true in the dairy industry. Uh, All of the different species now, uh, things are moving fast. So, you know, we're going to have to update nutritional specs, other things um, on a faster rate as well because of that.
0: So I think that's a great yeah, segue we really, a question for Jason. Yes. Go ahead, Jason. Yeah.
2: I mean, we start looking at customer closeout data and you really see that over the years uh, as a, from a terminal side, just what these animals will just flat out gain when they're healthy and in a good environment. It's, it's actually quite phenomenal. Just what, the capabilities that they have. You just kind of wonder what the future is going to hold as we get to improve and, and bring up those, you know, kind of shift that bell curve to the right even more and, and bring up maybe some of those tail enders that uh, would have been a coal pig five years ago and now they're going to be, you know, full value pigs. So I think if the future really looks up when um, we look at genomics and see what we can bring to the producers in the field. So what kind of
0: adaptations have you had to make uh, due to this rapid changing pig, rapidly evolving pig, if you will, Jason, from a nutritional perspective?
2: Yeah, like you know, Tom said we're are the genetic change is is speeding up. So it used to be where, you know, we might look at lysine requirements once every five years or so and and make a change there where we're starting to think that we need to do that and look at that maybe every two to three years uh, and make some updates that they might be minor updates as well, but you know, we're, we're seeing a a higher improvement lean gain while still having a high growth rates. So, you know, that changes just what these pigs need from a, from a lysing standpoint for optimal performance. Uh, Obviously, You know, for best cost can be a little bit different in the field. And that's kind of what I deal with on a producer by producer in in different region standpoint, because, you know, the best gain doesn't always mean best return or best cost. So we kind of have to, uh, you know, play that right or or you got to, you know, take that with a grain of salt. Um, But as these pigs are growing faster, it's just trying to keep up on, you know, what do they need? So we're not lagging behind.
0: And so you mentioned lysine. What about other, sorry, Zachs. Uh, what, what about other amino acids? Um, you know, as these pigs become grow faster, more efficiently, are we finding other amino acids that are now limiting? Well,
2: I think as these diets become more purified and more crystalline amino acids are available in the marketplace and more affordable, uh, the big question is, is, you know, what's the next limiting amino acid? Uh, you know we're able to in some places put uh, crystalline valine in some diets, um, and that's you know you're you're at four or five crystalline amino acids in some of these diets, and and you might have a, a pretty purified diet at that point. And so right now we're kind of looking at branch chains amino acids and how that affects uh, intake and growth rate, especially with different ingredients. And that's the big caveat is there's the effects of ingredients and how you value those in the pigs can really make a difference in, in how you formulate diets and then how you set your recommendations
0: zach anything to add there from a from a poultry perspective i know you guys uh, probably probably uh, believe you're leading the way in uh, amino acid nutrition
3: yeah i was to say we uh <clears throat> actually i was adding to that i mean granted now i'm not a uh, out in industry as much, so I don't get to uh, do all the fun experiments, but at Balkin we're actually clearly a choline company, so we've been doing quite a bit of research on choline and looking at how uh, requirements have changed within broilers. Uh, hopefully, we'll get to pigs, but uh, and not only in the animals, but we've actually been doing a lot of work with the feed stuff and seeing how the actual crops have changed because they're under the same selections, bigger, faster growing, more production, and we saw a a change in the amount of choline that's actually in the crops.
1: I'm I'm curious. Can I ask a question? Is that okay? Um, Absolutely. I'm really curious as to how crops have changed over time. Are there any general statements you can make about energy, protein content, those types of things, especially especially corn?
3: I would say so we we actually did um, uh, we looked at four different things. We looked at DDGs, wheat, um, soybean and corn, and we mainly focused on the choline on it. Um, But, yeah, we saw uh, pretty significant reductions in the amount of choline versus what the NRC from the last, I think the last poultry one was 1994. So uh, it's uh, significantly lower than than a lot of people were kind of the numbers that people were using.
0: You know, Zach, to kind of build on that, not only has the crops changed, but the animals changed and the requirements for those nutrients have changed. And I know that you've recently um, completed some research at, was it Auburn University? Auburn, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Can you touch on that a bit? Are we yeah, allowed so, to do that?
3: Uh, I don't know, but we'll uh, we'll see. And if we aren't, we'll cut it out. <laughs> um, <clears throat> um, but yeah, no, we saw, um, we, we did a choline titration trial in broilers. Um, and as you know, there's probably similar in pigs. There's two main broiler companies. There's the, the Cobb Genetics and there's the Avigen. And the current one was with Avigen birds, but I would assume a similar response. But we saw... Um, uh, I mean, we started all the way from no added choline all the way up to um, 2,000 ppm added, and um, we saw a linear linear increase in uh, breast meat and a linear linear decrease in feed conversion. It was uh, almost a perfect line. So uh, it's, uh, it's it's definitely some some different requirements for these birds. We're uh, hoping to do a couple more to uh, look at some different aspects and kind of. Push the range and see where we need to be at. But you
4: know.
2: yeah, it's interesting because <clears throat> one thing we talk about, and one I think the crop has really changed, is when you look at soybeans. And we know the percent of oil and protein in those beans before the process differs from Minnesota to Dakotas into Iowa uh, just by their growing areas and growing regions and d- degree days. That uh, I think where you're probably leaving some money on the table by not looking at soybean meal by plant um, instead of just kind of considering it to be one protein, one amino acid level.
3: And also, it was interesting. So, <clears throat> the wheat was probably the least different, it had the least change in it. And if you think about it, it's not quite as selected, and there's not as many GMOs and different variations of it compared to the corn and soybeans, which had the largest diff- discrepancy in choline. Mm-hmm
0: you know, it makes you wonder, um, you know, with with Tom talking about the genetics rapidly changing in in these animals, are we going to have to take a look at all the nutrients that we're giving them and maximizing it for for the current genetic makeup of those animals? Just kind of curious.
2: Yeah, at least in the swine, I I think, you know, we, we talk about other amino acids, but we always ratio those off to lysine. So we have an assumption that uh, if our lysine levels are correct, then if we ratio the other amino acids, then we're, we're really in the ballpark, um, whether that's right or wrong, because we know different breeds and different genetics have different feed intakes and different performance and, and different lean gain. Um, there's just so much variation or much more variation in the swine side than what you'd see in the poultry from producer to producer to probably be more defined but I think that day could probably come as especially as these companies get more integrated with packing and gets more information back
0: I was even thinking about minerals you know when's the last time we've taken a look at mineral requirements in these animals I mean I don't know I don't know if you guys have an idea of that or not I know that the poultry people are looking to update the NRC here soon and I'm sure they'll address it there not sure about the swine folks
2: we're way behind. So a lot of the vitamin mineral uh, requirements from swine, you know, NRC goes back decades. So when you look at that from a requirement standpoint, um, I think there's still a lot of work to do, but it's just kind of it's generating the funds and 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 things to do at that that level. Um, Private industry probably is is not a great place to look at that, but it might have to be done at a university uh, a level to really get to the bottom of that, and um, you know, just finding the the people that want to study that for five years or so can be a little bit difficult. But you know, we go back and forth from uh, a sulfur or inorganic uh, mineral to an organic mineral, and, and what's best to use, especially in. Some of our high-value animals, like our, our gilt developer animals, um, that are going to be the base for your your sow herd, and even in, within the sow herd, you know we we think that we could we could use a a, a higher value organic mineral at, at, at levels. Uh, I don't think they need to be formulated to the same levels that we have our inorganics, but uh, we know they're uh, much more absorbed uh, than your inorganic and. Um, but we need to have more information of once they're in the body, how, how they're interacting and, and, what they're actually doing.
0: You know, if we could kind of maybe switch gears just a little bit, um, uh, sponsored a, um, symposia on epigenetics in dairy cattle. And I'm curious, Tom, um, do you take that into consideration? I, I, am going to back up just a little bit. I, I, there was a presentation there done by, uh, Dr. Chad Deckow from Penn State University and he had a picture of the world record holding um, dairy cow from this uh, past couple years. And from a genomic perspective, this animal was below average. And so the the, the thinking is, right, there was some epigenetics at play here. And so just kind of curious about your comments uh, relative to epigenetics and the role it, it plays in your operation.
1: So That's a really interesting question and i have a couple of examples i'd like to throw out there where we would see an effect i think like that and it's a true mystery uh, for us so when you're let me back up a little bit so if you're making genetic improvement you're really selecting on the additive genetic variation so what genes that animal has and how they contribute to its performance when at least the definition i would use of epigenetics is your you're perhaps, and maybe a cow model is easier. You're saying, well, if depending on how I feed this beef cow, I'm going to impact her calf, that's now a replacement in my herd. So you're actually probably modifying the genetic expression through some kind of environmental factor. Um, We, you know, by definition, we can't really take account of that uh, in a breeding program. Now, I may be proven wrong about that. And maybe we need to in some way shape or form but uh, certainly it's it's not something you can select for but it's something you need to understand because perhaps that could result in recommendations for producers and so on um, jason mentioned guilt development so how do we properly develop these guilds to really set up them and their offspring for future success so that's where i think it can come into play but within our own selection program we have examples of uh, for example Duroc boars. Uh, that that at at 22 weeks of age have come off tests at nearly 380 pounds. So that pig, if you do the math on that, I, I'm doing it in my head, but that pig would have grown over three pounds a day since birth. How does that happen? You know, how? how I mean, normally that's a high ranking animal, but it may not be. So how do you get those outliers and what was different for that pig compared to others? And i think that's where that epigenetic question could come in is that um, you see these animals with really great performance that are just outside the norm um, you know genetically you're, you're going to identify those but then there's some other factor there. there there definitely is some other factor there that's that's maybe not a inherited inherited component and we need to understand that better so i i don't have a deep answer for you on that question but i I, I do think we see it, and uh, you'll see it in those, those real outliers uh, in your populations.
0: Yeah, it's a fascinating topic. You know, another one of the speakers was Dr. Pete Hansen from University of Florida, and I remember one of his comments was that, you know, you're impacting, well, his research was on the uh, gene methylation of um, the one or two-day-old embryo, and they, they had done a lot of in vitro research. But anyway, he was talking about um, the ability to impact three generations, the animal that you're feeding the nutrient to, and, um, the, the calf that the animal's carrying, and then the gonads, which impacts the next generation. So it's, uh, it, it's, it's a fascinating topic and, and one maybe we'll have to explore here uh, sometime down the road.
1: Yeah, if there's one thing that's true about genetics, um, you know, we don't know what we don't know. Yeah. And 20 years ago we wouldn't have been talking about these things you know we when I was in graduate school, and I won't say when that is, but you can you can maybe figure that out um, <laughs> um, that's when really genomics first started and I remember people saying, and this would have been in the early 90s saying that well by the end of the decade, we won't have to measure any phenotypes. We're going to know the genotypes we're going to know performance and and that's proven to be so far from the truth, and, and the more time that goes on, the more we learn about the complexity of the genome, what's turned on, what's not turned on, all of these things, it's just a rich area of research, so um, it, it's, it's exciting to begin to understand those and be able to, to hopefully have those help us.
3: Mm-hmm. Going with that, you mentioned that uh, you rely heavily on genomic selection. How, how heavily do you rely on that versus the actual phenotype of the offspring or so, parent?
1: Yeah, so I, I mean, basically, we're um, so so we use a single-step genomic prediction. So basically, we're incorporating genomics into that relationship matrix, that underlying relationship matrix. So we're not actually uh, estimating a an allele effect, if you will, and then combining that with the phenotype. It's all one analysis. And so, from that standpoint, the the jump in accuracy of that twenty-five to forty percent. I mean, that would tell you the impact that it's had on, on the program, but, but you're really using it in that, we're using it in that fashion versus, you know, having a separate analysis that we're trying to combine.
0: All right. Maybe change uh, some gears here. Um, Tom, I'd like to kind of circle back, you know, uh, to one of the topics you addressed in your webinar, which is your 14 21 program. Um, can you give us some background on that and why that's important?
1: Yeah, I sure can. We um, about a decade ago, we really, really kind of sat down as a team and and talked to our customers. We 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 um, gathered as, as much information as we could to really understand what the future direction needed to be for a, a maternal program. And what we heard from the industry at that point in time is that you know labor is continuing to be a bigger challenge and. It's almost impossible to have a conversation with a producer today or a customer and have them not bring up labor as their biggest challenge. So when you think about that in terms of a selection program, we can certainly create a lot of genetic potential, but your level of management to extract that's not going up, it's going down. So we have to produce an animal that's more self-reliant, more self-sufficient, able to really produce, and, and in terms of our sow, produce and wean pigs on her own and so a big part of 1414 was was really to identify those sows that have that ability to wean 14 14 pound pigs 21 days on our own so uh, that was a big driver there Um, certainly uh, we want a pig that's high quality and what i mean by that is it it, you know it's born at a healthy weight Um, it it, it's going to nurse well going to go on to wean and survive Uh, we don't have people to run extensive fostering programs on farms to try and save more pigs we need sows that can really lactate these pigs on her own um, and and go on to wean those so that was a big driver for us Um, and and then just you know looking at the complete ferro to finish model in terms of what really optimizes that whole system and what's the sow farms contribution so it's it's the sow really, the sow farm, you want to produce more pigs, but those pigs go on into finishing. So you have to look at the whole picture and really understand the quality of the animal, how that impacts your grow finish costs. And that makes you think a little bit different about what you want your sows to do. So that's really the basis for that from a kind of a big picture standpoint. Uh, but what was the, those were the key drivers for us putting that program together.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, building on that, during your webinar, you mentioned that uh, sound nutrition is one of the areas that's hardest to research. And, you know, it's one of the areas that's most lacking in terms of data. I kind of like to ask Jason, you know, how are you dealing with that?
2: Well, it is. It's, it's really hard to get data and just research into cell farms just because there's so many moving parts of it that, you know, can confound your results. So you got areas from health to, you know, you still got to treat a research farm, like a commercial farm. So you're gonna be breeding targets and so forth like that. And ultimately the pigs have to go out the door at some point. Um, so from a nutritional standpoint, the way we look at that is we try to control the body condition of the in gestation. Um, and feed to more of the level of the sow and get her an appropriate uh, appropriate body level that we think is going to maximize intake and lactation. And that kind of just keeps playing off at, uh, on each other where we minimize the fat accretion and gestation and, and hope or think that that's going to drive feed intake during that lactational period. And then once we know that feed intake, we can base a lot of our nutritional recommendations off of that, because really when we look at from a from a lactating sow in the farrowing uh, house, that you know production with the with the growth rate of the pig and how many pigs she has is going to drive your lysine needs for milk production. You can kind of debate. Well, maybe we should set lysine levels to where they're actually gaining protein too, as well, because some of that weight does have value to commercial farm. But at this standpoint, I don't think we're quite there to be able to quantify that quantify that area. So we're trying to set that um, uh, basically to maximize production in the wean pig and in weaning weight. Paint, paint everything with the broad, broad stroke brush and. And um, and not a lot of producers from a commercial standpoint will actually track or, or, or know what their feed intake is. Um, so that's, it's a struggle, it really is.
3: So going back to the 14 and 14, <clears throat> I think that's interesting because there is um, a kind of an experimental selection program that was made up looking at early exponential and late exponential growth in poultry. And for the uh, early exponential growth, you actually look at fourteen-day body weights, and uh, <clears throat> those typically tend to be your more, I guess, maternal lines. So they're usually the best egg producers, uh, you know, good fertility, laying ability, more feed efficient. And then the late exponential growth is kind of more, more where your male lines come from. So I thought that was interesting that uh, that it's also going along with, I guess, uh, improved piglet numbers and that type of thing.
1: Yeah, I, I, that's a really interesting point you make because I maybe let us segue a little bit into the grow finish side because one of the things that I think um, that that's a bit of a quandary, right? So um, if you want a pig that has extremely strong early life performance, that's a different animal than the the one that's going to finish in pigs anyway at three hundred pounds and and really efficiently because there's certainly genetic lines out there that, um, you know, if you did a trial, a sire line trial and stopped at the end of the nursery, you would obviously choose one or the other, but then you'd carry that on into finish and you would completely flip your decision. So I think how those growth curves are put together has definitely changed over time. My, my personal theory um, is that if we, for years, have selected for a lean pig at a heavy market weight, so that's what the industry wants and has wanted or desired for a long time. So if that's a 290 or 300 pound pig, what, what you would actually be doing is you want a pig that has maximal growth to that end point and still remains lean, has the cutability that we're after. So basically you're pushing maturity out. You're pushing that growth curve out further, probably creating a maybe a larger animal, maybe an animal that um, matures later in life so I think those are all implications of how we've selected this animal. Certainly have implications for you know how we how we're feeding the animal, but those growth curves have changed. So you know early life growth doesn't look the same as it did 30 years ago and 20 years ago, and and I think that's a consequence of what the industry's wanted. But I I, I admire my colleagues in poultry because you can have that that six week bird and the is it a 12 week bird? I can't remember what those are, but there's big differences in those programs.
2: Yeah. And even though that the, the, the growth pattern has changed, we know we can still alter some of that um, by nutritional processes and, and using, you know, more expensive ingredients, more palatable ingredients in early nursery. It's just a matter of, you know, are they going to pay for themselves? And I think the old adage is <clears throat> if they have a, of a, an extra pound coming out of nursery that's going to carry forward into finishing or even multiply off of that. And I don't know if that's always the case. Um, it just matters if that's based on if you're doing that through a nutritional process or if it's actually a a genetic process. And then what Tom said with the eating pattern, some of these, some of these pigs, I mean, in our research barn, we get, it's not uncommon to get six and a half uh, pounds of feed intake at a hundred hundred pound body weight. It's just phenomenal what these pigs will sit down and eat.
3: So as y'all select for more and more rapid growth as the poultry have also been doing? <clears throat> we've clearly had some uh, issues that you run into. Um, nutritionists blame uh, geneticists and the geneticists blame the nutritionist. But anyway, it, it typically <laughs> comes back to rapid growth from whichever side, uh, whichever side you're coming from, but stuff like tibial dyschondroplasia or ascites, and more recently, I think, um, woody breast and white striping. Are y'all having issues such as that in pigs?
1: Uh, we haven't seen the equivalent to woody breast, at least to my knowledge, and certainly not not in the lines that we're working with. Um, I, I do think, though, that, um, uh, you know, the the interaction between nutrition and um you know skeletal well nutrition genetics and then skeletal integrity is something that we need to always be aware of and and understand I would say that you know the pigs probably haven't gone as far as poultry in terms of the genetic response that might trigger some of those issues but I, I do think that's probably part of our future, and we'll we'll want to learn from the poultry guys on how to deal with that. But, you know, it's, it's uh, the growth rate these pigs have, it, it's like the, you know, the six-foot eighth-grader type of syndrome. You know, they're growing extremely fast. You have to, uh, you know, hopefully have, you know, adequate um, nutrient availability, but there's also this just genetic component to it, I think, as well, where you have fast growth the skeletal structure has to keep up and everything associated with that so those are all you know issues that are on our minds and and um, you, you do tend to select against some of those pigs that have those issues because they don't go on to be selected at the nucleus level you know they, they there's a certain amount of calling that takes place uh, with those animals that that aren't don't have that structural integrity, so there's there's some of that pressure going on, but yeah, I I appreciate the question and I think it's it's something we need to be aware of.
2: Yeah, on the uh, on, at least for the pigs and the carcass standpoint, the carcass you know meat fat quality, uh, our biggest issue has been more on the fat quality side, and that's more of a nutritional problem where feeding highly unsaturated fatty acids and can we do more so to the ethanol uh, policy that we have in feeding distillers with, with high amount of corn oil nowadays. So, uh, the nutrition department I is probably a little bit more to blame on, uh, on any carcass quality issues that we're having nowadays, but I agree with Tom. It's, you know, we need to be mindful of how these, this growth rate is actually affecting how these pigs move and, and, and function and still be productive in some of these finishing units. Kind
0: of circling back, uh, Tom. You had mentioned that you wanted a—I think you said—a 309-pound pig, and you wanted them very lean. Um, is what do you see changing going forward? Are we we going to keep getting bigger and bigger? Have are we gotten to the size that we we want? And then and then, what's driving that size? Is it the consumers' desire for a certain size meat cut, or is it you know the packers and what they can manage? Uh, I know, I ask a lot of questions, there <laughs> let's go yeah. with that.
1: No, I, I think a great question. And, and, and I, um, I can only really share kind of the feedback we've gotten from different, different customers and different aspects of the industry. So I don't want to claim to be a, an expert in any of those areas. Um, but, but certainly when we look at pig size, we're seeing that increase over time. So uh, the same as you would optimize throughput in a grow finish system with the, the tonnage of pork or pig that you can push through that system. You know, I think when you look at the packing industry, uh, it's a very similar economics. So, you know, if you can have a larger pig coming in, uh, each rail in that just carries that much more product. So I think from that standpoint, there's this economic incentive to push weights higher. Um, I think we'll continue to see that, but the flip side of that is, is that, um, you know, I know people have shared with us that the consumer or, you know, whoever that is, not, not necessarily you and i that are going to the grocery store but people that are buying bulk for food service and those types of things you know you hear complaints of cuts being too big now so i think there's this there's a bit of back and forth that's starting to occur on pig size and, and i don't know where that's going to end up usually you know economics tend to rule the day but certainly we're still expecting a trend for heavier pigs and and i i don't really Know if I can predict where that'll stop, but 290 is pretty typical today, and you know, going up over 300, I know is has been looked at by folks and, and seems to be very economical as well. So I think that's part of it. One one thing I do see changing, though, is uh, we're seeing a lot more. Of course, we've had integration for a while with different groups that own both both production and packing, but we're also seeing more producers that are forward integrating into packing. And the implication of that for us as a company is that historically, our pig has really been designed for our direct customer, who's a pork producer, to drop that pig off at the plant. So you want a pig that's efficient, that grows quickly, and that meets the cutability matrix that maximizes their payout. Once you have ownership in packing, now things like meat quality become more important to you because there's no economic incentive to do that today, other than a packer saying if you don't, we're you know we're not taking your pigs. <laughs> but um, I, I think we may see that start to evolve here over the next decade, and you know we're going to start hearing more talk about uh, meat quality. I think as a company, we need to pay attention to that, and that could you know impact how we select our sire lines for example. And so we're very engaged in those conversations and uh, definitely see, uh, you know, the industry as a whole has already moved to a Duroc sire. And I think the reason for that is that the Duroc sire compared to Piatrin or Hampshire-based sires brings more meat quality. So packers have recognized that. Now the question is, how do we differentiate within the Durocs that are available to us? And so that's where you're going to get into, you know, higher quality cuts coming in the plant maybe specific labels put on those or brands i think all of those things are going to be part of the future
0: you know our industry's gotten very good at uh, you know growing high quality protein very inexpensively and and i do wonder if there is an opportunity to at least you know carve out some niches to differentiate ourselves right we've got a little farm market here that sells uh, some obscure breed from Europe because it supposedly tastes better and then there's another one down the way that, the, that the sells Berkshire right uh, because it supposedly tastes better and I, I can only assume that has to do with uh, fat quality and and fat content but uh, it just seems like maybe there's not been a lot of emphasis put on you know the the actual um, aesthetics and and taste of the meats so
1: yeah and there's been some some groups that are individual producers or small groups of producers that have carved out really nice niches for themselves you know with a really high quality product that's differentiated Um, and and i think those opportunities are there for people that want to pursue those and and can market that Um, i think in the broader industry um, of course you've, you've you're dealing with a lot more volume but certainly differentiation in those products would, would occur as well. That, that doesn't preclude some of the smaller niche markets, but you know, hopefully brings a better eating experience uh, uh, to, to have pork just compete well with beef and the other options that are, that are out there. You
0: know, while we're on the subject of consumers, are there any other uh, consumer implications uh, to deal with from either a nutritional perspective or um, genetic perspective?
2: Well, I think uh, from a consumer or industry product um, issues right now we're seeing is more on the welfare side where we see more of the Prop 12 space issues. So it's a little bit uh, more so on the economics of what producers have to go through to produce a a viable product. Um, Now with that, you know, we've gone from gestating stalls to group housing to larger pen size so i think some of the uh, areas that we need to look at or at least be mindful of in the near future is just how the behavior of some of these animals change as we make genetic uh, improvements so when we look at you know the different purebreds uh, uh, lines um, that we have on test between the the york and landrace and duroc we know that they have different eating patterns. So with the Duroc having, you know, being a large intake, large gorger, but may go to the feeder a few fewer times a day versus a a Yorkshire who will nibble so many times, but they'll go back 10 times a a, a day. So, you know, figuring out some of those eating patterns and how they apply to raising a better pig and um, how producers can actually use that or understand that
0: in the field. You know, kind of along those same lines, you know, we in agriculture are going to be charged with the challenge of feeding an ever-growing population, right? And not only feeding them, but feeding them sustainably. Um, So are those considerations you guys think about either from a genetic or or nutritional perspective? And if so, what, what are they?
1: Yeah, I think when we think of um, the sustainability story, um, I think the pork industry even today has a tremendous story to tell. Um, I know the the pork board has has figures on that over the last, you know, uh, 30, 40, 50 years on the changes that have taken place. So if you think of something like uh, feed efficiency and what that does to reduce the, um, uh, the amount of land required to raise a pound of pork, uh, that gets into, you know, the amount of water used and and so on. So all of those things have really strong, uh, very desirable trends that have made a tremendous contribution to sustainability already. Certainly we want to continue those. Um, You know, I I think some other areas of research that we're engaged in is, uh, for example, trying to uh, select an animal that's more resilient to the challenges that it faces uh, in in the normal production system particularly with disease challenge and so if we can select a more resilient animal that's more uh, able to you know perhaps survive and thrive uh, even when exposed to uh, kind of a normal level of pathogens those things i think uh, are useful because they reduce antibiotic use um, which is public concern, I think, amongst some groups, and uh, has a direct impact on those things. So, you know, there are areas that, um, you know, anytime we're making genetic improvement, I I know I'm probably coming from a a biased standpoint here, but uh, anytime we improve efficiency and anytime we can improve more output with less input, we're having a huge impact on sustainability. It's a great story to tell. We, we don't do as good a job as an industry in getting that story out.
2: Well, one thing Tom hasn't talked about was just what we've looked at from a survivability trait uh, perspective. And, you know, the the biggest sustainability uh, area that we could increase is, is reducing mortality. So if we can affect uh, mortality or increase survivability through our Genetic selection index—that's you know—that's a huge uh, saver from uh, you know less inputs to create the same amount of, of pork pr- produced. Um, you know, from a nutrition standpoint, um, you know we're always looking to use less and, and get out more. So uh, I think we can, you know, from a diet standpoint, we can use more crystalline amino acids and reduce the amount of nitrogen that's wasted or, or not being utilized by the pig uh, and that goes in the pits. Uh, what we kind of run up against is right now is we need a, a minimum amount or minimum level of, of crude protein in the diet. Otherwise, we are affecting um, performance, and and that goes back to the what we don't know on um, what or amino acid levels or amino acid requirements. And uh, we may actually figure out that we need a certain amount of of nitrogen for the pig to synthesize. Uh, other non-essential amino acids within the body, uh, so you know amino acids that we didn't need to provide through the diet before, and then maybe we need to do that in the future if we're going to bring that that crude protein down even more. Um, a little bit on the flip side of that, and and I know we talked about crops earlier, but uh, there's some research out there that actually shows that soybean meal uh, provides some um, some benefits, in, especially in a in a low health environment. So on the flip side, if we have a a health outbreak, we might actually want to use more soybean meal and more uh, crude protein within that diet to actually help some of these pigs um, get through a a disease outbreak.
0: You know, speaking of health, that's one topic I I don't want to miss before we close here, but um, what's taking place from a genetic perspective to mitigate disease?
1: I'm struggling to answer that just from a couple different directions. So as far as mitigating disease, when you look at the health that we need to maintain at, at our nucleus level, um, there's been a tremendous amount of work done on biosecurity and, and all the steps that we have to take to secure those sites uh, to ensure we don't have any fomite or direct transfer of any disease. Uh, we're doing a lot of filtration at most of our our nucleus sites so that you're also you know, through a HEPA filter keeping the air going in uh, filtered from any outside viruses so if that's the part that might be part of your question there as well is is the work that's been done there that's been really critical for us but from a from a disease mitigation standpoint the uh, one of the things that we've Uh, actually implemented just recently in our our Duroc selection program is selecting to improve survivability. So we've been able to demonstrate that, you know, while the heritabilities are are low, they're on about the same level as litter size. So we know we can make some uh, genetic improvement, but uh, there are differences amongst sires in the survivability of their offspring. Uh, we can measure that in a very general basis just by looking at uh, survival rates of offspring of sires in commercial environments that, that are somewhat challenged. And, and that is a trait that we put into our index directly to try and, and it will identify those sires that have more robust offspring. So that's a mitigation strategy, I think, that's got a long-term uh, path to it. Uh, but, but those are some of the key areas that, that we would have been focused on, both from preventing disease, if you will, or just preventing its transfer into a farm and preserving those farms for future genetic progress, but also in the pig itself as the offspring go out into the real world and have to deal with pathogens, creating a more robust animal.
0: Yeah, I, I was kind of thinking more specifically, is there anything that you're doing from a genomics perspective to look at um, improving specifically the innate or adaptive immune systems? Have we gotten that far along yet in identifying, you know, those specific genes? And then, and then from a nutritional perspective, you know, how do we turn them on and off?
1: Yeah, I, I can take the genetic question first, Jason. But um, from we, we have been involved in some research just, just in the last few years with um, a research consortium that we're part of where we've looked at uh, pigs that have been through a disease challenge model. And what that's allowed us to do is to, um, you know, basically look at the activation of the immune system and look at uh, various, you know, parameters from a blood sample, for example, or in tissues, and then look at the genes that might be turned on. And of course, a lot of those, as you might expect, are associated with a major histocompatibility complex. So really a lot of, you uh, alleles that are likely associated with the immune system uh, directly Um, there appears to be elements of the innate immune system that are also associated with with resilience to disease Um, i would say from my perspective that that was a tremendous project we've learned a lot from it now we got to figure out how to implement it. so we're starting to learn more about the underlying biology Uh, when you think back on what i said earlier about selecting for just survivability we're likely going after those alleles through a phenotypic trait Uh, but i think understanding that underlying biology is going to make us much more precise and and i think that's a future uh, endeavor as we we go forward
3: say in poultry they um... I don't know if they necessarily do it so much commercially, but I know there's been a lot of research and there's several lines that are selected for and against certain diseases for susceptibility and resistance. And one of the most, I guess, probably the most famous one is from a, a geneticist that's been around forever, Paul Siegel at Virginia Tech. And he's selected on just antibody production and it's to sheep, red blood cells. And I th- think he's been doing this for, I think in almost 50 years and the yeah. lines are still going and, uh, he's still, uh, still breeding them and still selecting them. And it's kind of, uh, interesting to look at the the offspring between the two, because your high in a body, your hass last line are, um, are usually a lot smaller and your, your low antibody productions are usually kind of bigger. So it's interesting to, I think, I think the main, takeaway is that people it's resource allocation but it's just uh it's interesting how you can select for that much divergence out of a you know random bred population
1: yeah yeah you know the goal in production is to not turn on the immune system right? because it costs energy and (laughs) um but yeah that i think that makes perfect sense that that's kind of the direction those lines would go um But there's obvious, you know, the thing with genetics too, is there's always a balance, right? We can't go too extreme in any one direction. So I think as we learn things, particularly, you know, the immune system is a lot harder to measure. We can't just go out and weigh a pig and have some, it's an indirect measure maybe of of immune system function, but we have to be able to get some kind of phenotype. Those are really, they're there, they're hard to get. Um, They're expensive to measure, but You know, I I do believe that that there are opportunities there and they're going to they're probably not forefront today, but they're being developed.
0: Gentlemen, as we wind down here, I'd kind of like you to take a look into your crystal balls. Imagine uh, the the pig of 2050. And uh, Tom, what does what does that pig look like from a genetic perspective, a phenotypic (laughs) perspective? And how are you going to get there? And then, Jason, how in the world are you going to feed them?
1: that is the hardest question I've had all day. (laughs) (laughs) 2050 is a long time from now. But um, one thing that genetics has never done is, is really failed to achieve. And what I mean by that is if we think of things like litter size, there's people that, um, you know, used to think when we got to 12 pigs per litter, we were at an optimum, if you will. Uh, But the animal, continues to prove us wrong. So, I think when we think of the future, we're going to be able to create female lines that, uh, you know, are are going to give birth to and wean, you know, ninety-five percent of the pigs that they give birth to. They're going to be at a at a at a heavy weaning weight and and just continue to perform uh, through finishing. I think if you think that far ahead, though, there's other things that are going to have entered the picture. We talked about disease. I think we're going to have lines that. Um, are resistant to different diseases, uh, either through selection or potentially even through a gene editing approach. And there's lots of opportunity there with with editing. Um, It's a matter really of consumer acceptance of that product and how we define that. But I, I think that's a tool that we're gonna use specifically for uh, disease to start with, and then there's probably going to be other applications to really speed up the process. So I guess my vision would be a, a pig that's highly resistant and, and thrives in the environment that we provide for it. Um, you know, we're going to have reduced mortality to minimal levels. I think if I had a 30-year crystal ball, that's where we'd end
2: Well, from a nutrition standpoint, I think we're going to be able to be much more detailed in feeding these pigs whether it's, uh, you know, instead of feeding one lactation diet to your whole sow farm, maybe we'll have a couple of different feed lines to feed different diets at at different stages in that production. And when you you talk about a little bit beyond the scope of this talk here, from a feed milling standpoint, there's a lot of neat things going on with sensors and inline NIR testing that we can get, an ingredient uh, analysis back uh, quicker and more accurate so we can formulate these diets much more precise. So we're not overfeeding or underfeeding at certain points uh, of those pigs' life. Um, And I think just the overall acceptance of of technology in the barns from simple cameras in the barns, uh, that's gonna help us determine the size of these pigs and the health of these pigs and how to feed them differently from that standpoint um, so and one thing i do see is i do see a lot more swine nutrition graduate students in school here today than i did at my during my uh, time period so i think we're having a lot more younger group coming through that's going to bring a lot more Uh, ideas or or fresher ideas to the industry and I think that's something that's uh, uh, very good for the swine industry in total.
4: Our last call question is brought to you tonight by PuraCole. Look to PuraCole Choline Chloride from Balchem to deliver the highest standards of quality backed by the strictest process controls for a level of purity, safety, and consistency you won't find anywhere else.
0: Guys, uh, they just called last call. That means I'm going to get another drink. I don't know about you guys, but as we as we wind it down here, I'd like for each of you, all three of you, to give us uh, you know one two key takeaway items that either an integrator or a nutritionist uh, can take home and, and and learn from today. So, um, Jason, why don't we start with you?
2: Well, I hope uh, people can take home today that. Uh, you know, we're making improvements to this pig every day, and that's going to change the way that we feed it. And we're we're going to bring information to you and, and hopefully uh, information that's going to help you make your production and your system better. And, um, you know, we're going to keep bringing the best pig and the best people uh, and the, the best genetic progress forward. Thank you. Zach?
3: I guess the takeaway would be that I think genetics in all species, for that matter, are always changing, and uh, to meet the co- consumer demands and uh, supply the increasing food supply that we're that we need, it's uh, I think it's going to be a never-ending, never-ending thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Tom, final
1: thoughts? Yeah, I, I think one thing I'd like to leave the the audience with is that um, you know, as a genetic supplier, we we really strive to understand what what does the industry need in the future and you know what are the issues we face today with the animals we work with Uh, is there a genetic solution for improving those and uh, just to be you know just to know that your voice matters and you know if we look to the opportunities whether it be with the female line with the terminal sire line we talked a little bit about meat quality today and and potential impact there there's just a lot of opportunity out there and, and genetics is kind of that base if you will that we can build from so uh just know that there's a there's a listening ear, um, and and we're we're working hard to make the pig better every day as jason mentioned
3: mm-hmm.
0: good so gentlemen i want to thank you for coming today this has been uh very enlightening i've enjoyed it immensely i uh, appreciate uh, you know, learning about the impact that genetics is going to have on our lives—you uh, know, this is exciting stuff—and I'm, I'm sure that we're going to be addressing this in future webinars and future podcasts. And I hope to see you guys here uh, once again at the Real Science Exchange. I'd also like to thank our loyal listeners for joining us once again. Uh, I gotta admit, this is one of my favorite parts of the week—to be able to sit down with everyone here and, you know, have a nice, uh, uh, relaxing drink and, and talk animal science. It's—it's it's a lot of fun. So. We hope to see you next time here at the Real Science Exchange, where it's always happy hour and you're always among friends.
4: We'd love to hear your comments or ideas for topics and guests, so please reach out via email to anh.marketing at valchem.com with any suggestions, and we'll work hard to add them to the schedule. Don't forget to leave a five-star rating on your way out. You can request your Real Science Exchange t-shirt in just a few easy steps. Just like or subscribe to the Real Science Exchange and send us a screenshot, along with your address and t-shirt size, to anh.marketing at balchem.com. Balchem's Real Science Lecture Series of webinars continues with ruminant-focused topics on the first Tuesday of every month, monogastric-focused topics on the second Tuesday of each month, and quarterly topics for the companion animal segment. Visit balchem.com slash real science to see the latest schedule and to register for upcoming webinars.